Let's pray as we come to hear from God's word. Father God, we thank you for the rich privilege it is to have your word written in our own language so we can hear it, study it, know it, enjoy it, and be changed by it. So Father, please focus our minds and hearts now to hear your word as it really is, the word of the living God. And please help me in my weakness to be clear and helpful, uh, that you would be glorified in the preaching and hearing of your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I was at a family birthday party a couple of years ago when uh, my auntie greeted me as I just arrived, stood up, gave me a big hug. It was pre-COVID. And quite loud, she asked me, are you still preaching lies? Uh, My auntie and uncle call themselves Christian. Uh, And we'd had many conversations about our differences uh, in understanding and convictions about the Bible, but I was pretty taken back by this fairly public confrontation and accusation. The next morning I was here at Bundy teaching our Sunday youth, and I was still processing what had happened, so I shared it with some of our Year 7 and 8s. And in kind of classic youth style, one girl simply raised her hand and asked, How do you know you're not? How can we be so sure that Christianity is right and the other religions are wrong? Now, it turned out she was processing this exact question with a Buddhist friend of hers from school. But if you are a Christian here tonight, how do you know that you have made the right choice and are on the right track? And I think every Christian should ask and be able to answer that question with confidence. And if you're not, uh, if you're here tonight and you're not yet a Christian, it's a great question that you should ask to whatever decision you have or haven't made. Uh, This is helpful, especially for Christians, I think, because we actually can get it wrong. We can have the right Jesus, but the wrong response. We can start well, but then get off track. We can start with clarity and passion and conviction only to then drift into confusion, apathy, and especially into waywardness. Uh, As we started Mark's Gospel last week, we saw the identity and the greatness of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And we looked last week at how easy it is for us to start well with that clear picture from God's Word, but then over time to twist and to taint it which then actually influences and shapes our response to him too. But from Mark, with the identity of Jesus clear in those three scenes we looked at last week in verses 1 to 13, now we hear the call of King Jesus as he proclaims to us what his coming means and especially what response is required. Uh, Hopefully you notice as verse 14 begins, uh, it begins somewhat ominously. John the Baptist, the promised forerunner we heard about last week, the prophet, the messenger for God and from God, he's in prison. He's literally handed over. It speaks of God's sovereignty because his preparing work is done. Jesus now comes and he's preaching in Galilee. Uh, And he proclaims, again, keep your Bibles open, in verse 15, he proclaims the gospel, the good news of God. Now, we saw last week, gospel, it literally means the announcement, the heralding, proclamation of good news, of victory, of triumph. But this gospel, we're told, is 
of God. It's from God. Yes, it's about God and his plans and purposes in the world through his son, but it's from him. It's his gospel. He is the source, the origin of this good news. It's what he planned, what he promised, and what he has now sent into the world to be proclaimed and heard. The gospel of God. That's what Mark's kind of heading over what Jesus proclaims. But then the content comes in summary form in verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus says the time is fulfilled. That is, this is the decisive moment in human history for God's plans and purposes to be achieved. The time to set things right, to bring the rescue God promised is now. All human history has been leading towards this moment, just as we heard last week. Because Jesus, just as with John, their coming is what God promised through his prophets beforehand over hundreds of years. The time is fulfilled. Therefore, the kingdom of God has come near. Uh, The kingdom of God, it's not a place, it's not a location, it is a rule. The kingdom is the reign of God. Now there's a sense in which God, of course, always rules. He's always in charge because he's God after all. But the kingdom of God is God's rule that is now recognized and enjoyed. It's that Old Testament expectation when God himself would rule through his appointed king, bringing redemption and salvation, bringing justice, setting things right. And the kingdom has come because the king has come. King Jesus, the Christ, the son of God, his coming brings the kingdom. But notice that Jesus says the kingdom has come near. Uh, Not meaning that it's really close and it could appear at any moment, but that it's here, yet still coming. It has come, but there's more we can say. The kingdom is now, but it's also not yet. As we're about to see in the ministry of Jesus, we're going to see signs of the kingdom, but they are snippets of the bigger reality when the kingdom will come in its fullness. And through, the preaching, uh, through his preaching, Jesus says the kingdom of God, the rule of God is now. He brings it. And as the king of the kingdom, he sets the terms of how we must respond, what we should do. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, there's some pretty classic Christian jargon words, I think. Uh, But we need to have clarity about what they actually mean because this is what Jesus is calling us to. To repent is simply to change your mind, to change direction, to flip your life on its head because who's in charge, who rules, has changed. Jesus is the king and he now rules my life, not me. And so notice that Jesus does not come and call people to some adjustment or refinement He's not here to tweak our morals or set some self-improvement goals. The message to a driver going down the wrong side of the freeway is not make sure you wear your seatbelt, indicate well, and head check before changing lanes. The message is you're going the wrong way, stop, turn around. That is repentance. This is a call to acknowledge that we are wrong. 
Your life is going the wrong direction without Jesus as your Lord, without him in charge. That's what we do. We repent and believe. Now, I think to believe or to have faith, they're the same word in the Bible. It's one of those kind of classic words that has become skewed in our culture. I think it usually means something like confidence without evidence or the leap in the dark. It's hoping for the best, even though perhaps there's not good reason to. But that couldn't be further from the biblical idea of believing or to have faith. To believe here is to welcome the message. It's to accept the good news of the king and then actually base your life on it. To rejoice that God does rule and then to yield, hand over all of your life to him. Repenting and believing always go together in the Bible. As we first accept, we acknowledge the crisis. We see the need to to change, then accept, base our life on the good news of what God has done for us. Because as Jesus preaches the gospel of God, he is not giving us advice. He is declaring news, proclaiming reality that God has claim upon your life, news and reality that demands a response from every person in every place across all of time, proclaiming gospel that you don't have to earn your way to God. Jesus does it all for you. The kingdom of God has come. He has brought the kingdom near and is calling you to join it. Not by adopting some moral code or just changing your worldview, but following the king and heeding his call. And notice that's exactly what we see happen as Jesus calls two sets of brothers, the fishermen in verses 16 to 20. Uh, The events are pretty fast-paced. Uh, as these four men, I think, serve as a brilliant example of how we are to respond to the king's call. Notice Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee in verse 16. He sees Simon, or Simon Peter, and his brother Andrew. Uh, And perhaps they're partners in a fishing business, and he calls them to follow. Look at verse 17. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Notice the pattern repeats, verse 19. He sees James and John, their brothers, sons of Zebedee, and they're in a boat working on their nets. Verse 20, immediately Jesus called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Notice as both sets of brothers hear Jesus' call, their response is both total and immediate. Jesus calls them to follow him and he will make them fish for people. That is their whole lives, their whole identity is going to change as they join his mission and now serve his purposes. Because the key word in both responses is the word leave. They leave their nets and followed, verse 18. But then notice as the pattern repeated in verse 20, it also escalates. The Zebedee boys, they leave not just their nets, but their boat and their father. But the point is not that they never fished again or never saw their father again. We know they did. But it's a beautiful picture of total change in loyalty and priority. To follow Jesus, to be a disciple, is to leave behind 
possessions, family, career, not in the sense of abandonment or rejection of those things, but they are now given over to Jesus. They come under his rule and now serve his purposes. He's in charge. Their response is total. They give it all to him and it's immediate. Notice there's no delay, no discussion, no argument, just instant compliance to the king as he calls them. And Mark is highlighting for us that we should not delay as we hear the king's call to repent and believe, which is what we're doing right now through the gospel. We are hearing the king's call, his claim on your life, that the kingdom has come near to repent and believe. But this, I think, raises the important question. Does Jesus have the authority to make that claim over your life and mine? Is he worth the time, worth hearing out, or just another religious loony that we can dismiss? Uh, I'm sure Zebedee thought that as he watched his two sons get out of the boat and just walk off with the guy who said, follow me. Can you imagine his shock as they leave behind their lucrative fishing business, their family heritage, their income, their security? And I think that exact same shock has been shared by many family members since this event. Uh, I was the last of my siblings to become Christian, and at my brother's 21st birthday, he declared in a speech that following Jesus as his Lord and Saviour is the best thing in his life. To which my auntie, who was standing in front of me, a different one from the start of the sermon, she sighed and asked, Jesus isn't your Lord and Saviour, is she, Andrew? You're the last hope of your family. And, you know, we've actually seen this time and time again in our youth group as teenagers become Christian from non-Christian homes. A couple of years ago, we had a year 12 boy wrestling, agonizing over the desire to be baptized, to publicly declare, to be obedient to Jesus, knowing that it would cause even further conflict with his father and most likely result in the need to move out of home. I imagine lots of you have experienced this tension, the friction, the shock, that comes from friends or family because of our allegiance to Jesus. As priorities change, how we use our money or our time, following the king can put us on the outer as he changes our loyalty and our values. We might be asked, or at least we might think to ourselves, have I got it right? Is giving over all to Jesus right? Why aren't we crazy to heed the king's call? to repent and believe. Well, I think Mark answers that for us in the very fast-packed action of verses 21 to 45 that actually mostly takes place over one glorious weekend. The Jesus who calls for all of our life is going to prove to be worthy of it. And heeding his call is not going to be merely reasonable or logical, but wonderful and safe and joy-filled. He begins by showing us Jesus' authority. Verse 21. They went into Capernaum and right away he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. They were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority, not like the scribes. 
in the Jewish synagogue on the Sabbath, the Old Testament would be read aloud and the rabbis or the teachers, they would get up and speak and they would quote from other rabbis for their authority, like kind of like footnotes that you put in an essay. And they say, and it was certainly true at my time at Bible college, the less you actually know, the more footnotes you've got. And that's the rabbis, footnoting every second word. But when Jesus gets up to speak, there are no footnotes. There is no referencing. He speaks with authority. The word literally means out of his own being. It's where we get our word for author. Jesus speaks with authority as he teaches about God, about our world, even about ourselves. And they recognize his authority as he teaches. As they listen, they sense that he was explaining the the story of their lives as the author and it left them dumbfounded and we will find the same as we listen to Jesus. And you can picture the scene, right? You can hear a pin drop as he preaches. But it's almost comical that their stunned silence is interrupted by a demon-possessed man who interrupts things and cries out in the synagogue, verse 24, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This demon, this unclean spirit, as Mark calls it, he recognizes Jesus' authority immediately. Notice there's no resistance here, no even fisticuffs, just submission. Now, I imagine for some of us, the the presence, the talk of evil spirits or spirituality in general, it can be hard for us to take seriously because we are so materialistic in our culture. But the Bible just presents it as reality, and Jesus has absolute authority over all evil. And the scene moves from his authority being recognized to now demonstrated. Verse 25, Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit threw him into convulsions, shouted with a loud voice, and came out of him. Now, exorcisms were not uh, uncommon in the ancient world. They were very familiar to them. But they were usually long-winded and very drawn out. Yet Jesus speaks just five words in the original, essentially, zip it and get out. And it does. It obeys. The people are amazed, verse 27. They ask each other, what is this? A new teaching with authority, he commends even the unclean spirits and they obey him. It's no wonder his fame spreads like wildfire in verse 28. When Jesus speaks, it happens. Just as we saw as he called the four fishermen, he called, they came. He has that kind of authority. Like God himself in creation, he speaks and it comes into being. It happens Jesus teaches with authority and even has authority over the forces of evil but also power over sickness. In verse 29, it's now dinner time. They leave the synagogue and head to Simon and Andrew's house. But rather than a relaxing meal, Peter's mother-in-law is in bed with a fever. And quite simply, Jesus heals her, verse 31. So he went to her, took her by the hand, raised her up, The fever left her and she began to serve them. She's the host, she gets up, she cooks them food. The event is just so calm, it's so straightforward, it just happened. He raised her up and then she cooked. 
And notice that Mark records this not because it was so unique and this amazing one-off, but just examples of what was happening all the time. Verse 32, when evening came after the sun had set, they brought to him all those who were sick and demon-possessed. The whole town assembled at the door and he healed many who were sick and various diseases and drove out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. The king has come. He brings the kingdom, the rule of God. And we see that his work, his presence, it's not simply spiritual, but includes the physical. He is fixing the broken world in every respect. And these events, Jesus tells us in Luke 11, the reference is in your outline, that these events, they are signs of the future. As the king comes with power and authority, evil is conquered, sickness is healed, he is setting things right. And although they are not a guarantee that this is what we will experience all the time, they are foretastes of what life in the kingdom will be when it comes in its fullness. But notice that at the end of verse 34, Jesus would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Jesus silenced the spirit back in verse 25, and as Andrew read, he commanded the healed leper to be silent in verse 44. But why would Jesus want his identity, his mission, to be a secret? Uh, This theme, what is sometimes called the messianic secret, the secret about the Messiah, it does seem kind of odd. But Mark is showing us that with Jesus' ministry comes a mass popularity and following. The sick and the possessed, they come from everywhere. The whole town is literally at his doorstep. But as we heard last week, terms like Messiah, Son of God, King, Holy One, these are loaded terms full of expectation. And the Jews at the time, they were waiting for the Messiah, but in their mind, Messiah was military conqueror and especially defeating the Romans. If word spreads that the Messiah has come and it is filled with their expectations, not reality, people might even see it as a call to arms and political overthrow on the way. But Jesus is adamant that the hysteria not distract people from coming to him for who he actually is. Coming not on their own terms or with their own expectations, but coming to the king for the king. We see this in verses 35 to 39 as Jesus shows us his clear priority. After spending the whole night healing people, Jesus is up at the crack of dawn while it's still dark to be alone and to pray. In Mark's gospel, this is something Jesus does in moments of crisis. We'll see it again in chapter 6 and in chapter 14. As Jesus kind of heals and drives out demons and the masses flock to him, benefit from him, love him, there must have been incredible pressure to just make this his life's work. Not just the temptation of fame and glory and adoration, No doubt, this was actually something Jesus enjoyed doing. But this is where those scenes in our passage last week that set the identity of Jesus up for us come in. There we saw that his mission, his identity is to be king who conquers, yes, 
but suffering servant who dies for the forgiveness of his people to bring them peace with God. He's the king who rules, who saves through his own death in our place. But the question had to be asked, right? Why suffer? Why die when the masses are already coming to you, already benefiting from you? Just keep healing and be loved. This pressure is so clear in verse 36 as Simon and the other disciples, they come to Jesus, they literally pursue or hunt him down and they say, everyone's looking for you. Now, every time that phrase is used in Mark, looking for you, Jesus, it's negative. They are searching for Jesus with an agenda, an agenda of wanting the benefits of Jesus without Jesus to be healed or to be fed by a miraculous feeding. And the disciples, they they come and they're essentially saying, get out here, they love you. Your prayer retreat is a super buzzkill, letting the team down, let's get back to it. And I think Jesus' response would have both shocked and disappointed them. He says in verse 38, let's go onto the neighbouring villages so that I may preach there too. For that is why I have come. Jesus is not going to be diverted from his priority of preaching. Now, it's not that he's against uh, the healings or doesn't want to do them. Uh, They are important signs of the kingdom. But the miracles, these events, they are meant to confirm and support the preaching, not replace it. We see this in verse 39 as Jesus does continue to cast out demons while preaching. But the preaching is more important. But why? Now on the surface, preaching over healing, it kind of looks cold and indifferent. What could be worse for an Australian than another preacher? How can he turn down so many people with so many good opportunities to help them? What could be more important than actually healing them? Yet what we need to see is that the sickness and the evil and the presence of evil spirits that Jesus encounters and what we still experience, these are signs of the brokenness of our world, but symptoms of a bigger problem, symptoms of the consequences of our rejection of God. A couple of years ago, while my wife Holly was pregnant with our first child, Thomas, Uh, I heard about this story that really stuck with me uh, of a lady named Naomi Williams uh, and the story is because she was pregnant with her first child too and she went to hospital in rural New South Wales with stomach pain. And though she was very concerned, I guess as all first-time mums are, she was assured that all was fine and was given Panadol and an ice block and then she went home feeling pretty much okay. She then died hours later due to the meningococcal-related blood poisoning that was undiagnosed and untreated. We actually get the danger of treating the symptoms but not the illness, of merely masking up pain. Jesus is determined to not simply give us paracetamol that takes away that immediate pain but only delays the inevitable. If he goes on healing, he will fix our bodies, but not our soul. 
There is temporary relief, but there is no forgiveness of sins, no rescue from hell, no conquering of death, and no relationship with God. What the king has come to do, the transformation he will bring through his blood, goes to the core problem. And preaching the kingdom of the king, calling people to repent and believe based on his saving work, is the priority because it offers people not temporary relief but eternal rescue. And so I think Jesus is doing what we deep down want all good leaders to do, to choose not what is easy and popular but what is right, what is deeply needed. Jesus is determined to preach the kingdom of God because heeding that call, is what we truly need, though costly and painful for him. Jesus is worthy because he prioritises what is needed, what is good for others. But in this final event, he also shows us he does this because he is the compassionate king. We know from our own experience that someone having power and authority is not necessarily good or comforting. But in verses 40 to 45, Jesus' authority and power meets his character. Verse 40, Then a man with leprosy came to him on his knees, begged him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Now we usually use the term leprosy to describe one illness called Hansen's disease. But in the Bible, it's actually a very broad term covering over 70 skin-related diseases. And in the Old Testament law, in Leviticus 13 and 14, there is quite specific requirements regarding leprosy. Uh, If you thought you were infected or had some form of physical manifestation, you'd go to the priest uh, for assessment. He was operating as their doctor, essentially. Uh, Once diagnosed, and presumably with uh, some form of infectious Uh, leprosy you were required to then leave the community because they couldn't treat it and they didn't want it to spread which we kind of get that right Uh, then you would dress in tattered clothes let your hair go wild cover up the lower part of your mouth essentially all visual aids that you were sick and then you would have to call out unclean unclean if anyone approached you so they would know to avoid you Their status was public and just horrible. In fact, the first century Jewish historian Josephus, he says that socially the leper was equivalent to a corpse. His suffering, it's not just physical, it's social and it's religious because he can no longer access the temple. And you can feel his desperation, right? He kneels, he begs and asks Jesus, are you willing He's heard of the power and authority, but is Jesus willing? What of his character? And let's be honest, fresh off Jesus' prayer retreat and commitment to preaching in 35 to 39, we might expect Jesus to just walk past, even maybe to rebuke him and let him know preaching is more important. But no, verse 41, moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing. He told him, be made clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. 
Again, the healing is instant at the command of Jesus. But notice that Jesus touches him. Possibly the first human contact he had had in months. And why Jesus' compassion? A word that literally means pain in your bowels. Jesus feels and is so moved by the situation, the plight of others, he acts even at cost to himself. Because according to the Old Testament law, Jesus would now too be declared unclean because he touched him. Not to mention the fact he'd be exposed to the disease himself. But notice the opposite is what takes place. Rather than Jesus become unclean, the leper is cleansed. Not simply healed. He's cleansed in that he's now restored into the community. That's why in verse 44, Jesus tells him to go to the priest. He wants his change in status to be publicly recognized and brought back into the fold. And so the call of the king, that the kingdom has come near to repent and believe, now meets the worthiness of the king who has authority and power, but also character and willingness to match it. But I wonder if you notice that the passage kind of finishes on a bit of a somewhat sour and confusing note. In verse 43, Jesus gives the now healed and cleaned leper a stern warning. Say nothing to anyone except the priest. But it seems he doesn't do either of the things Jesus says in verse 45. He goes and talks about it with everyone so that Jesus can no longer enter the town openly, but he was out in deserted places and they came from everywhere. Now, on the one hand, this is a pretty beautiful picture of the gospel, isn't it? The leper is cleansed. Jesus is now the lonely outcast. But some have seen this conclusion as a pretty positive thing. You know, what Jesus does for us, it's so significant that he can't keep quiet about it. And we should be like that too. Or even the irony that Christians are told to go and proclaim Jesus, but we don't, while this man is told not to, but he does. Now, that might be true and sad, but that's not the point, I think. The man disobeys Jesus, right? And it has negative outcomes that Jesus is no longer able to preach the gospel. It's railroaded by his extending fame as people flock to him still, yet driven by their own agenda for healing. And so while Jesus has called people to repent and believe in verse 15, we actually don't see that happen anywhere in verses 21 to 45, despite the phenomenal crowds that are coming to him. And the language that Jesus uses with this leper in verse 43 is really strong. Uh, Jesus is trying to make a really big deal of this moment. He gives him what is literally an outburst of anger. The word that's used here was often used at the same time to describe the snort of a war horse about to go into battle. And so having encountered Jesus, having been cleansed and now given the command of the king, how does he respond? Disobedience. The chapter actually ends with us to ask the question, are we like the leper? Are we too giving Jesus the response that he calls for or the one we prefer? 
Jesus calls for total, all-encompassing loyalty and obedience. And far from unfair, unfair or harsh, heeding this call is actually going to be so good for us both now and forever as we see the character of our king. As Tim Keller says, as a child blossoms under the authority of a wise and good parent, as a team flourishes under the direction of a skillful, brilliant coach, so when you come under the healing of the royal hands, under the kingship of Jesus, everything in your life will begin to heal. And when he comes back, everything sad will come untrue. His return will usher in the end of fear and suffering and death. And so as the chapter ends, we are asked, are you heeding the king's call? Now, if you are not yet a Christian, it's so good that you're here because the call to repent and believe is being made to you now through God's word to find relief, to find life in the kingdom, to flourish under the king's reign. Will you give him the total and immediate response that we saw in those fishermen? Ask, what would actually stop you from responding that way. Now, if you're unsure, if you have questions, then you should come and talk and ask. Talk to the friend who's invited you or even sign up for Christianity Explored, a course that we run that will start next month. But for many of us here who are Christian, there is a danger right now. Maybe you're feeling it. I did that deed months, years, decades ago. I'm a Christian. Let's get on to the response song. But as we heard last week, just as we need to keep the gospel on repeat so we have a clear and right picture of Jesus, the call to repent and believe is not a one-off but all of life for a Christian. To have what Paul calls in Philippians 1, a life worthy of the gospel, consistent in every area of life that Jesus is King. So have you got it right? Do you have the right picture of Jesus with the right response that he calls for? Not just did you heed, but are you heeding the call of the king? Are you giving Jesus the response, the worship that he calls for and deserves or what you have decided? It is easy for us to get Jesus but not to respond rightly. Did you see the tragedy in the passages of Mark 1? The main ones who understand and get Jesus are demons and they're terrified of the destruction he will bring them. Why is it that there are so many stories of Christian leaders who are unfaithful to their spouse, of Christians or churches that have been deceptive with their use of money, abused their power and influence and preyed on the weak, For Christians, there is always the temptation to minimise Jesus' claim over our life. To come to him with an agenda of what we think is best. Or to compartmentalise areas of our life that Jesus just has no authority to tell us what to do. To repent, but with a little asterisk over the top, only where I deem it necessary or suitable. So ask yourself, Does total, 
and immediate response to Jesus characterise all of your life. Whether it's sexuality or service, money or even our minds, what we watch, what we wear, our giving, our generosity, is it all shaped by loyalty to Jesus? Does repentance and faith permeate through all of your life? The call of the king is good news. The worthiness of the king cannot be overstated. So what response are you giving him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of hearing the Lord Jesus' call tonight. And we ask, we long, please work in us to be people who repent and believe the good news who joyfully come under the lordship of Jesus, who have him rule all of our life. Please give us the total response he calls for and deserves. And we thank you that he is the worthy king we can trust. Forgive us where we have sought to control or limit our response. Forgive us when we think we've known better. And move us to be people who live our lives, all of our lives, worthy of the gospel. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.